You're listening to the Art of Move podcast hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 90 freaking nine of the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar, fresh back from Mexico. Mexico. We are both in the Canadian Rockies, still trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and how to live and exist in a human body, navigating with a human consciousness. We uh, are overdue for a conversation. It's been a while since we've done an episode. I've really, really missed them. We have some juicy stuff for you today. We're going to start right away with a... Interesting post from someone in the community, a fellow named Zach Woodward, Z-A-K Woodward A-T-P, uh, who I'm pretty sure has a very strong influence with the ATG movement system influenced by Ben Patrick. Uh, and he had a uh, he had a post that kind of talked about um, this idea of people using the term fascially driven athletes, right? So thought experiment. If Neymar is more, quote, fascially driven than most of his PSG teammates and being more, quote, fascially driven makes you more resistant to injury, why does he get injured more frequently than many of his PSG teammates? And then his comment follows up by saying the fascia-based community and trainers out there are doing a service to the industry. They're bringing awareness to a piece of the equation that has long been ignored by the mainstream. But while they criticize strength and conditioning for ignoring fascia to focus solely on strength and power, many of them turn around and ignore strength and power entirely to focus only on fascia. Bit of a pot and kettle situation. Fascia training is something we should learn more about and how it fits in our training. But let's maybe not be so quick to ignore proven concepts that have worked for decades to jump on the latest bandwagon. Just my two cents. So right off the get-go, do you think that the idea of fascially driven training is a bandwagon thing that people are hopping on in the functional fitness community? Yes, I would like to define that though, because um, mm. that's a term. It, it to me, it's kind of a marketing term. At the same time, it could mean something, mm. right? But I, I guarantee that if I ask somebody, they wouldn't know what fascially driven actually means, right? So um, it could be a marketing term. It could be a like I think I understand it, right? That you're uh, using your fascia more than you're using your muscular system where the traditional lifting strength and conditioning models relied on muscles and levers as the way to get stronger and quicker, faster, and be able to move. However, fascia has been left out of the equation almost completely up until recently. Then you have people jumping on the fascia bandwagon and going completely in the other direction saying muscles don't matter. Now, I kind of want to go where let's let's bring the nuance to the conversation and see what actually happens in the muscle and fascia and what could be possibly Mm. meant by fascially driven athlete right um yeah yes so yeah i'd like to start like by having that clear definition of uh you know maybe a strength and muscle driven athlete versus a fascially driven athlete my own definition off the top of my head is a muscular driven athlete is focused on like you said that development of muscular force output. You're basically creating a neurological adaptation to recruit more motor units to produce more force through progressive strength training, right? So you're you're using movements like squats, like deadlifts, like whatever uh, you know strength movement that you want to do, progressively overloading, so that you can contract your muscles harder, faster, <laughs> and be more explosive. And so so that's that's like the the conventional model of strength and conditioning is 
you get stronger, and then you condition yourself so that you can sustain that strength longer. Uh, so it's a strength and a work capacity, strength and conditioning thing. Uh, fascially driven to me means that you um, understand that the connective tissue, the fascia, the sort of um, it, not necessarily just the muscle fibers and the muscle tissues and the motor units in terms of like the nerves and everything. Th th these are all essential components, but it's actually the connective tissue, the innervated connective tissue that has viscoelastic properties, visco referring to like fluid, elastic, you know, rebounding and snappy and bouncy uh, that allows you to take advantage of forces that don't require you to squeeze your muscle, to contract your muscle. So if you're taking advantage of an elastic force, you don't have to contract your muscle because it's a, a, a form of more free energy. And so a fascially driven athlete is someone who has, um, you know, maybe not as strong of a, you know, like a contractile force in terms of a raw number on a squat, but their ability to uh, react in terms of their elastic potential and their ability to rebound and their ability to, uh, be snappy and poppy. Um, that's why you see like the Maasai tribes that are like bouncing like freaking five feet off the ground and they're, they're bean poles, right? They're skinny, small dudes that have like this explosive power off the ground and can jump like as high as any, you know, basketball dunking super athlete. They, they, you would say that they're fascially driven. Uh, and you know, just cause they don't have huge muscles, it doesn't mean that they're not going to have a ton of power in the expression of their, their physicality. So that's how I define mm -hmm. the two things, right? It's like, it's sort of like motor units, muscular adaptations, neuromuscular adaptations versus, um, you know, maintaining the viscoelastic properties and efficiency of the connective tissue and the mechanics of yeah. your movement. So those are my yeah. two definitions. If I wanted to put it in one words, fascia is elastic recoil or elasticity mm -hmm. and muscle is uh, concentric levers and uh, muscle to tendon, okay? So it's mm. it's the traditional model. The traditional model is there's lever system. You have a bicep, it goes from your humerus down to your uh, uh, radius, right? Or your you know your forearm mm. up to your shoulder and it contracts and it brings you, brings the arm up, right? And we strengthen that, we strengthen that bicep and then once it gets strong, you can bring it into an application and you will be stronger in that application, right? There's mm -hmm. never a fascia conversation there. Fascia wasn't even in the mix in that conversation of lever system. And that's because it was brought to you by cadaver science, right? Like cadaver, I dissect, I can see the, I can physically see if I dissect the muscle attach here in the shoulder and attach here in the forearm. I see them come closer. I can like physically pull them and they come closer. Therefore, it's true. But I had to dissect it like that too, right? Which uh, ironically mm -hmm. is the counter argument against fascia, like Tom Myers, where it's like, oh, he just dissected the fascia the way he wanted to. It's like, well, we're doing that for <laughs> muscles too, right? So um, yeah. I don't know exactly where I was going with that one, but uh, that's just a nuance to it. There was never fascia in the conversation. In fact, I took three years of cadaver anatomy, and I can tell you right across the board, and anybody who thinks I'm wrong can come at me with this is that fascia was just thrown away. It wasn't an important system. It's just connective tissue. It doesn't have a role. Let's not even look at it. So when someone says, where's the study? It's like, well, we didn't study it. So, I right. mean, like, <laughs> but we can deduce its properties, and it has been done by guys like Robert Schleip. Um, oh, man, there's a lot of them. Anyway, but, uh, the you know, there's a fascia community out there who dissects fascia, who looks at the cells, who looks at the properties, and deduces what the fascia can do 
uh, according to the properties and we know it's there like it's not something that is a guess like guesswork it is there it is sitting on top mm-hmm. of the muscles mm-hmm. it is overlying the muscles at a cellular level so it's like a fractal system i was actually going to pull something out um just talk for a second and i'll uh and expand on that yeah for sure um I want to talk, and and so this idea of like fascia being an integral part of the connective tissue in between muscle tissues, this is sometimes extrapolated, and um, and basically what I'm what I'm trying to say right now is that like this idea of fascia, even though it's not studied very well, we we can still deduce its properties. We still acknowledge that it has a role, and then some people take that and run with it, right? And so when uh, when Zach here is saying, uh, he actually calls out a fascia-based community. Uh, of trainers, right? Like there's a fascia-based community. Now there's a difference between the fascia-based community that is doing dissections and and studying the properties of fascia. And then I would say the difference between them and the people who are the trainers who are quoting that, you know, fascially driven training is the way to do it. It's what's going to keep you hundred percent injury free. It's the only way to train. If you train muscles, you're stupid, like all this other stuff that people kind of take and run with this. Uh, when we said the idea of, you know, being fasc- uh, quote fascially driven thing, you actually had a really good follow-up comment um, about how the term fascially driven is uh, sort of a marketing term, right? Um, to, to, to a degree, every human being is fascially driven to an extent because every muscle in our system is, you know, intertwined with fascia in a particular context, right? So um, I'll actually just read your your, uh, your comment. Fascially driven is a term used by a specific person, but I would say analyzing elasticity versus muscular force in a sliding scale uh, with various movements, forces is more appropriate as a question or a topic. Everyone is, quote, fascially driven to an extent because everyone has fascia. So the term really has no specific meaning, So it could probably just be dismissed as a marketing term. On the flip side, there is a lack of specificity or regard to fascia in its role within movement and force and is outright dismissed by many who believe lever systems via muscles and tendons are the main contributors to movements. That's a pretty good way to sum up kind of like where we're coming from here. Um, So I have a model here of what the, the fascia actually is, okay? So pretend my arm is a actual muscle bundle. So let's say bicep. Okay, on top of the bicep, if I put this netting over, okay, um, and dress it up like that, that is going to be almost what the fascia is. And you got to get the visual on this one because I'm putting basically netting over my arm, and that's simulating the fascia Mm -hmm. going, uh, the muscle inside the fascia. Okay, now this could be a bigger muscle this could be my quad this could be my bicep it could be my forearm what you're seeing here underneath the skin right this is how it would Mm. sit inside the fascia let's say i got more jacked bigger muscles right this uh this would stretch out the fascia would stretch out and become more tense and more uh Mm. tight at the um like over top of the muscle right so that's one way that you can kind of play with fascia right um now some people naturally have tighter fascia, could have to do with hydration, could have to do with training. Some people have looser fascia. Some people have more elastic fascia. That's the way I want to do it. I want to get more elastic fascia throughout my life because that is the sign every young person has elastic fascia. Every elderly person has plastic fascia, meaning it more, becomes more plastic, right? It doesn't have as much bounce. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to lose this as I age. This is the key to me being fascially driven. That's how I would define it as somebody who... Well, not completely, but 
part of it is being elastic. Now, I digress. Back. This is a fascia over top of a muscle, but if I take a whole muscle bundle, and this is uh, spaghetti here, and I show you the spaghetti like this, okay? Imagine each of those spaghettis is wrapped individually like my arm is, or like my arm was. It's also encased in fascia, okay? So that in each one of these spaghettis encased in fascia individually becomes one big bundle of fascia over top, and all that is force transferred over into a movement. Uh, do, you, do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah. I definitely get what so you're saying. Yeah. It is massively important, but seen almost nowhere. So I'm on the side of it's been ignored um, almost completely, and we need to bring it into the conversation of training. Now, Zach's follow-up comment really highlighted one of the issues with that. Uh, do you mind pulling up or reading it? Yeah, for sure. So, so his, his response to you, right, was, I would love to talk about that. That's the challenge is that it's nebulous and hard to measure. It's not who's fascia driven and who's not. It's to what degree. Then how much do we want them to be? Is it different for different athletes, different sports? There's lots of nuance to unpack that people on both sides, pro or con, tend to ignore. That, that's a great uh, series of questions there, right? Like, um, the fact that he's bringing it up is great to begin with, right? Because it is like the word nebulous. Um, I'm not exact, exactly sure of the definition, but it, to me, it's like something that's cloudy, that's vague. Vagary. Right? So vague yeah, and hard exactly, to measure. Yeah. So it is vague in the fact that not a lot of people know about it, but you got to go and seek the information because it's new. So that might be why it's vague, right? Like we know the properties <laughs> of it. We, there's just not a lot of research, like double blind placebo controlled. Uh, studies done on it, um, it's hard to do because it's a living tissue, right? Um, in a cadaver, mm -hmm. it kind of mm -hmm. dies out and, and uh, shrinks right away, dehydrates right away. So you're not even getting the real fascia. To me, it's like an electric suit over, like a leotard over your body that's electric. But I digress. It is nebulous because it's hard, it's vague. Not a lot of people know about it and hard to measure. To me, uh, I don't really care about measurements that much. Like, that's more of how it's done in research. It's like, we need to know the numbers. We need to know uh, how much elasticity is happening here. To me, that's less important. Everybody has it, and we need to work with it, and we need to account for it. Just because we can't measure it in numbers doesn't mean we shouldn't account for it, right, in, in my mind. And, it, it like, hard to measure, it hasn't been measured, but it's there. That's also an issue. Do you know what I mean? You've been measuring force output uh, using fascia without using it as a variable and only attributing it to muscles right. and tendons. So that's kind of, on the flip side, the wrong way to do it as well and not realistic. I, I, and I, I want to kind of just really highlight a point that you kind of mm -hmm. talked about is this idea that fascia is a living tissue, right? It's innervated. So uh, in our conversation with Gil Headley, he talked about just how much uh, innervation happens within the fascial tissue and, and how much sensory data and how much proprioceptive and interoceptive data is acquired through the innervation in the fascia. So when you say it's an electric suit, what do you actually, you know, you're actually talking about like nerve signaling, like electrical nerve signaling that happens with, you know, in this connective tissue, uh, the hydration component is really, really important. And so, um, you know, how do you, one of the things that fascia to me kind of represents is, the, the sort of glue that 
com- like turns everything into a holistic system in terms of like the the musculoskeletal system, and it's very hard to break down variables if you're trying to look at something that is a, a part of a holistic system. Because as soon as you try to isolate it from the holistic system, its qualities change, and it fundamentally changes itself. So this is this is one of the the, the major issues that I kind of see with people trying to study or not study fascia is that like as soon as you try to isolate it as a variable it you can't because it's not the same thing when you isolate it yeah no i i agree with that completely right one of the arguments i hear about fascia is well since it wraps over everything no matter how you train it you're training it anyway as if training it would mean training it the same way right so you're training it anyway so it doesn't matter it's like well that, that doesn't make any sense because it's got 12 times more nerve endings than the muscle itself. Those are interceptive nerve endings, meaning that like you feel within. It's a very feel within organ. It is an organ, a very important organ, as big as your skin underneath. Wrapping everything around in your body, muscles, organs, the cells of the muscle, um, it is massively important and completely ignored. Okay, so, um, mm. and I understand where the... Mm strength and conditioning world is coming from with that as well because they're like now we have guys that are like fascia is everything let's ignore everything else so fascia is everything and to be honest there's much less of those guys than strength and conditioning guys who just want to ignore it so I, that's my assertion there because whenever i start to talk about this people get pretty like a lot of guys get upset i think because they don't know about it and they're like it's obviously muscles and tendons you know muscle pulls the tendon that is the majority of the force, and why are you trying to bring this fascia into play? And they look at it almost like this uh, hippy-dippy type of uh, thing, almost like a marketing organ, I guess you could say, a marketing term. <laughs> but it's a real thing, and it's very, very important, and it comes into play in a major way when you use the spiral system, which everybody's using in movement, but not accounted for mm. in the lever system. Well... Yeah, this this is an interesting idea of people who, again, use these ideas and run with them as marketing terms. That ends up hurting the discussion because, <laughs> like, if you can't substantiate some of your claims and you it, like, it's one thing to to acknowledge. It's like I, I, you know, there's not a lot of research on this, right? There's not a ton of objective data because it's very hard to gather objective data on something of this nature. However, we're able to observe these qualities and we're also able to observe that like different training stimulus affects the different qualities. And, and like, if you lift in this particular way, then your elasticity and your ability to rebound, uh, or you sent me that video of Eddie, Eddie Hall, who who snapping his bicep tendon when he, uh, was, was doing, uh, was doing some boxing there. And, um, and it was a good example because like Eddie Hall, probably has some crazy strong bicep tendons in terms of just ability to resist force. If you're thinking about like how much his bicep tendon has to withhold when he's deadlifting, put it in a dynamic, uh, you know, situation where you have to snap and you have to pop when you're doing boxing, you're trying to get that elastic recoil. He, he snapped his bicep tendon, right? Like he, he had, he had that issue. So different training stimulus is going to uh, create a different quality within the tissue. It's going to make specific adaptations to the imposed demands that you put on your body. So your fascia will adapt to have different qualities. We know this, right? Even though we don't have objective data of like, okay, well, you know, we look at the fascia here, you do this, it behaves this way. 
um, if, if people were intellectually honest about that part, I think the conversation might be able to go in different places. It's more when people are like, everything is fascia. And like you said, there's the people, you know, there's not a ton of them, but there's enough out there that can tarnish the, the general idea um, where it could be easily, you know, like I, I, I hear like people talk about charlatanism a lot in terms of the fascially driven community where it's like, oh, this is, you know, there's no science to back this up. They're just, it's all marketing hype. And the more marketing hype you do, the less credible it ends up being because uh, it's not as substantiated. And that hurts the conversation, I think, because, you know, like this is a, a variable and a factor that people should take into account. There's enough evidence for it. There's enough uh, reality based around it. Um, so I think, you know, pe people like, you know, who, who, who take this and run with it as a marketing concept, they're almost being used as a scapegoat for ignoring yeah. this variable altogether. The fact of the matter is uh, it's not being studied formally in academia in a, you know, double-blind research placebo-controlled study in biomechanics, as far as I know, anyway. And if it, if it is, uh, I'd be very surprised because people kind of love going after it. So I haven't found any, any, you know, evidence on that front, but I've have found more evidence with the actual mechanical properties of it. And who's to say you can't deduce how something's going to work from its mechanical properties. That is completely scientific, right? So, um, I know for a fact I've done cadaver anatomy personally in my experience, it's thrown out. So, um, that leads it into the area of speculation for the most part. And I admit that, right. I will speculate. I know where it is. I know how it works. I know where it attaches. I know the properties of it. So I can speculate how it moves, uh, how it works as I move, right? I know it's viscoelastic. I know that's what's responsible for rebound to a large extent or to a major extent. And muscles are given that credit, okay? The muscular system is given the credit for elasticity when it's actually the fascial system, okay? So a lot of the credit that the fascia is doing mm. is given to the muscles and the muscle lever system really dies out when you start accounting for fascia, which is why people don't want to look at it when it really comes down to it, because a lot of the systems start to make less sense. The linear training, the, the models of, uh, strength with length becomes less applicable or I shouldn't say less applicable. I should say you might have to change how you think about it. If fascia is taken into account, right? Um, it's not just pull the muscle and lengthen it out and, you know, the muscle tendon model where it's like, pull it enough. It's, you're going to start working the tendon, uh, the tendons where all the, the juices and that's it. Right. No matter what the muscles are all encased in fascia, it has to be taken into account. You have to take it into account in training. If you want to, uh, hit the next level, it's reality. It's like the, mm -hmm. Muscle models, like, let me pull up a couple things here. Um, I'm going to pull up. Uh, actually, can you take it for a second? I'm just going to pull a couple things up. Yeah, I mean, I, I also want to talk about this idea of dismissing the strength and conditioning thing altogether. We've shit-talked squats and deadlifts, and we've talked about some of the pitfalls of conventional training on many of our episodes. But in terms of, you know, the point that he that Zach made about people throwing away the conventional strength and conditioning that has been shown to work in certain scenarios, you know, where improving power output uh, has helped people feel better or more athletic within a training context mm -hmm. to a degree, right? It's like, 
I really like his idea of saying, it's like, yeah, obviously fashion matters. We want to just basically ask how fashionably driven uh, do we actually want someone? Like what's how, like how much do we want to run with this, take this and run with it? How much should we sh just completely throw out strength and conditioning uh, to become our best selves, right? Or our most athletic selves. And, you know, it's like, is there like, I, uh, I like Naudi's term that he uses when he talks about uh, different training stimuluses of, of negative externalities, right? So it's like, what are the benefits versus the negative externalities of certain training uh, procedures? Can you, uh, you know, do certain weightlifting maneuvers while reducing the amount of negative externalities? A guy like Devin Brown, one of a kind fitness, would say, yeah, I've, look, I've adapted the squat, I've adapted the deadlift uh, to be more biomechanically consistent with how the joints move and operate and fire in sequence during the locomotive pattern and during these natural uh, patterns. So you're able to develop reactive strength, you're able to develop power output, you're able to develop all these qualities of improved performance without the negative externalities of creating movement compensations or a situation where maybe your, your muscles are firing not in the same sequence that they should be in that spiraling dynamic that happens during a locomotive pattern, for example, maybe you can maintain uh, like elastic qualities, right? And that's why, you know, he's also doing like these partial reps where it's sort of that bouncing, bounding, reactive mm -hmm. strength. That is a skill in itself as well. Um, so th these are all interesting questions. And and, and I think uh, when, when people get really excited, and I, I did this too, when we first started the podcast that we got into GOTA, I like... I stopped weightlifting. I stopped doing everything. And I still don't squat. I still don't deadlift. Um, I'll do some like one-of-a-kind fitness deadlifts once in a while, throw in some stuff here and there. Uh, and I do some gymnastics because I enjoy, uh, you know, gymnastics, like calisthenics. And, and, and uh, like I've mentioned in other episodes, you still see 80 and 90-year-old men who can, you know, do pull-ups and dips and stuff. And it seems like it, it benefits them, right? So I, I look at what elders do in terms of the, the sustainability of, of different practices. Yep. But how much do you need to like throw all of that away and just be like, I want to have that elasticity. I want to bounce. I want to be like viscoelastic 100% of the time. And if I lift weights, if I do anything, any strength stuff, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make me less elastic and less athletic. How true is that? Uh, you'd have to go variable by variable there, right? Like um, I do mm. a lot of bounce training. Like most of my, I guess call it plyometrics, whatever you want. Plyometrics is fascial training for the most part, right? It's just uh, another word for it. It's fascial tendon. Uh, the classical model of muscle lever would say it's tendon training. You know, uh, that, mm. uh, what's it called? Um, not stretch reflex. Uh, anyway, tendon training. We're using the bounce in it, right? Mm. And uh, again, fascia is not accounted for there. It's also uh, working the fascia, right? So um, let's take a look at... at uh, video here that i just pulled up and we can talk about kind of like lead into what you just said there um let me share mm. the entire screen share okay so this is the hip physio and take a look at can you see my screen okay yeah, we can see so that take a look at the strongest muscle in the strongest hip flexor we're looking at the main hip flexor of the joint look at that string pull mm. the femur now this is the lever system do you really think that's happening in real life? Do you really <laughs> think that that little string is pulling the whole femur up and that's what's doing the work? 
Well, obviously not. Of course not. But where's the fascia accounted for? Because the fascia is doing the vast majority of the work. And when your hip is backwards in the run, it's behind you now. What's recoiling it is not the hip flexor. It is the fascia from the whole system. You know how I showed you the uh, um, wrapping around my forearm there? Imagine the fascia wrapping around your whole leg and all the way down to your foot, mind you, and in between your cells and uh, muscle bundles, and that's what's recoiling you to a large degree. That is fascially driven, okay? That's a Mm. perfect example Mm -hmm. of being fascially driven. Now, this is – I think if anybody looked at this, they'd be like, okay, that's not happening by just seeing the small string pull, right? But then, again, fascia is not accounted for. Mm -hmm. So so the muscle is also working as well, right? Like it is happening. The muscle is pulling. But to me, it's a starting and stopping and coordination tool. Or I shouldn't say tool, but its role is more starting, stopping, and coordination in movement. Okay? So what I mean by that is let's say your leg flies back, okay, during a run. Um. Mm -hmm. And it's about to swing forward. Now, the fascia is going to recoil whether you like it or not. If you're running full speed and you try to stop yourself, okay, it, it's, it doesn't matter if you try to fire your muscle or not. It's not conscious. It's going to come back forward. And that is the fascia recoiling in an elastic way to bring your leg back forward. Now, if I looked at an e, ECG machine like the... Uh, um, Do you want to just oh, yeah, stop yeah, sharing yeah, your screen real quick too? So if I looked at an ECG machine and see the electrical conductivity, it would shoot up, right? Well, for my hip mm-hmm. flexor, the muscle you just saw. So that has been extrapolated, mm-hmm. in my opinion, to mean that we should train the hip flexor because it fires at that point and strengthen it. But it's not firing because we're consciously firing it. It's firing it because it's a control mechanism to help catapult the fascia. And that's reality. That's what it like. That is what is happening. It is subconscious. You're not going to consciously do it. Um, the more you stay still, the more muscles become dominant. The mo- faster you go, mm. the more fascia is going to become dominant. Okay. And I I am also starting about stop or like sorry. I also am talking about starting and stopping. Remember the debate we had. Muscular people can run the 40, and then after that, it starts to go down a little bit. Like the uh, mm-hmm. the curve would probably go down. This is what I'm extrapolating. Why? Why can muscular people, like a bodybuilder, explode but then die off? And you see this everywhere. If they try to box, if they try to do martial arts, if they try to do anything like well-known in CrossFit, you can't be too bulky. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's because it, it's a high metabolic load, one, but two um, – you become more muscular dominant. You become more concentrically dominant, and you start to be less dominant with the elastic recoil. I should say the elastic recoil of your fascia. Now, to add a caveat to that, it could be neurological as well. Like if I'm always training concentric, let's say biceps, right? I can, I got big biceps right here, mm-hmm. sexy boy biceps, okay, and they're really big. And uh, I go back to throw a ball, and my arm can't extend all the way. That might be my nervous system just being like, whoa, you haven't been there for a while. And you're not training that way. Mm. You got to stay in a, in a shorter range because you're 
nervous system always wants safety, right? So with that said, I'm also going to share um, a screen here. And we'll go to, uh, sorry about that. I should be quicker with this. That's um, all good. Eddie Hall uh, sparring. So Eddie Hall is one of the biggest uh, uh, power, not powerlifters, strongmen in the world, right? And he started boxing. And look at him. He's, he's throwing uh, haymakers here. And he tears his right bicep, or sorry, his left bicep, throwing a hook. Okay, that's what I would kind of guess would happen, you know, because uh, right. you're never expressing that whip like motion. And look, at he's like freaking out right now. He, he just tore his bicep. Okay, so now he has to use his fascia in a whip like manner, which he almost never does. And it's likely one of the major contributing factors to uh, tearing his bicep. Right. Because he. Um, did I stop sharing there? I did. Yeah. So yeah. one of the major contributing factors to him tearing his bicep would be the fact that he didn't use it like a whip. He used it like a concentric motion. He's used to holding in tight. And when you have to use your fascia and your elasticity, you're going to start tearing muscles, tendons, fascia. Well, because, again, if you, uh, if you train for rigidity and stiffness and, and that concentric action, there's no – pop or snap right like that's that's i think really why i tore my uh my shoulder tendon as well because it was during an olympic lift something where i was trying to get that recoil snap and catch and my 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 bicep tendon and my shoulder labrum just just gave out on me because it's you know it's more used to stabilizing in these bench press or overhead press or pull up or you know like these very rigid positions and static positions wasn't it wasn't used to even uh, and you know an Olympic lift isn't even a great example of a true athletic application of how the body moves, but it's still uh, you know it's still kind of relevant to the discussion in terms of like I was trying to get that whip going and that whip just snapped me right because I'm so used to that rigidity as soon as I try to get some of that give some of that viscoelastic bounce back to give myself some room in the joint before I do stabilize it again. Yeah, just so, snapped. So what would be pertinent here would be the question of how much like because because we look at every power lifter almost every major power lifter is very rigid okay when they walk around they're huge they're rigid they're maximizing uh concentric activity to the max okay and then using your elastic properties is very um i guess you could say eccentric but that's not even the right word for it and i'll explain why in a minute but um it's almost the opposite maneuver Okay, so mm. how much strength training in a concentric manner is appropriate to give you the properties of the tissue that you want in order to bring it into an elastic athletic context, right? That would be right. the pertinent question there for athletic training. Now, I, I think it's very little, if any, right? I think you get away with almost mm -hmm. none. But... I'd probably be the minority in that, <laughs> you know? So, mm -hmm. and uh, what would be the ways to train? And so what, what, what I was going to say, what would the training stimulus, if you're, if you're not going to implement or employ concentric based training, what is the training stimulus that you would say would benefit improvements of, of athleticism of maybe some of that fascial elasticity 
what would what would you say in terms of like you know because obviously you do a lot of plyo bouncy training mm-hmm. I do too especially for lower body stuff a lot of jumps a lot of bounding a lot of uh, you know kind of like boxing footwork and dancing and a lot of stuff like that um, and I just feel great when I do that and I do a lot of running I do a lot of sprinting um, and once in a while once in a blue moon I'll throw in a couple of uh, you know OKF style trap bar deadlifts you know, mm-hmm. just because I'm like I want to pick something up off the ground. I just because yeah. I feel like it. Um, but what's, you know, if you're thinking about like, what's the optimal training stimulus if you're not doing that concentric based training as much? And, and that goes back to the question that Zach asked, like after the, you know, uh, the sequences of questions that he asked, he's like, in what application, for what, mm-hmm. for what sport? That's the whole thing. Like, I don't think longevity mm-hmm. and sport are two of the same things, right? Like I'm 40, I'm almost 40 yeah. now, right? I don't care about mm-hmm. one second mm-hmm. less on my 40. I don't care about dunking, like hardly like i want to be able to run in the mountains i want to be able to ski i want to be able to uh go for a run that night i want to be able to be agile agile i want to uh be pain-free right so these are completely Mm -hmm. different goals than getting that next level of explosiveness right so i don't think the goals really match uh in, in for those two things right like i don't think they're the same thing to have explosive athleticism and longevity you're not going to be working the same, getting specific adaptations to impose demands. They're not going to be the same between the two. So with that said, no. if I want to deadlift, sure, why not? That's a, It's something I prefer to do. If it's something I prefer to do and it's something I like to do, go for it. If you like to squat, go for it. I'm all for free will. But if you want to adapt and you don't care so much about hypertrophy or uh, the muscular system, the the um aesthetics of the muscle then going towards mm. more bounding based exercises to me is a smart idea now that has to be progressed intelligently okay um i do it with inertia waves uh, at the end range almost like atg but end range training right and that'll be my yeah. muscle stimulus mm-hmm. training and then i go and do movements okay so like real life action movements and and that's basically the way i do it in terms of tissue training now if i wanted to add in bicep curls i could and get my biceps bigger again the question would be how much can i actually do without adapting the opposite way about of what i want to Mm -hmm. yeah and and that venn diagram of performance and longevity is fascinating to me because i think that part of longevity is performance to a degree right there's there there comes a point of diminishing returns where you have to trade off your health for athletic performance but i think that also like health is like performance is health to a certain degree. I, I really, I really do believe that, you know, like as long as you're not exceeding the point where you're hitting a lot of negative externalities on other parts of the holistic system, then, you know, there's, there's a certain point of like, I would say that if you're in your nineties and you're still able to run, that's, that's like, that's a form mm-hmm. of performance. And that is longevity to me. Like that, that just, you know, it's like if longevity doesn't just mean it's like, Oh, you know, you, you can move and you don't have a lot of pain. It's like, how much can you do for how long, you know? And so I think that it's the, the Venn diagram is fascinating to me because, you know, I don't see a lot of, uh, fuck, I've never seen a video of an 80 year old doing an Olympic lift, but I've seen videos of 80 year olds going for runs. I've seen videos of 80 year olds doing calisthenics in the park and doing muscle ups and these flag poles and these different things. And, you know, still, still being able to do this stuff and still being able to like reach for things. And so it's like, 
that that element that's also why i kind of moved you know like even though it's more muscular based training um you know like a lot of my upper body training a lot of my movement practice outside of just my gait stuff and my functional fitness a lot of the move med stuff that i'm doing uh, i just like playing on the gymnastics rings because uh yeah. it's fun it's mentally stimulating and it's uh, it's creative as well and so it's like i feel like there's a you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of like mental stimulation that goes with that beyond just the like, you know, lift up and down. It's why I'm starting to dance a lot more too. It's why I started to, you know, run on trails and like force myself to focus on like, you know, the ice and the rocks and like there's, there's more um, variety of stimulus and, and an element of creativity and problem solving that kind of comes with that beyond just like pick up, put down. Um, I don't really know where I was going yeah, with that. I was going to say <laughs> just, the variable right there is like, or, defining performance, what you mean by that, right? Because I mean, that's going to be mm. very different for most people. A lot of people define it as, you know, how much can you lift in the gym or a particular sport? How good are you at it? Um, for me, performance would be to be able to do what I like to do at a, you know, fairly high level and enjoy it. Right. Mm. So I, I should be able mm -hmm. to go from skiing to boxing to running on the mountains um, and I should be able to enjoy it and do it at a, a fairly high level, right? So um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's more of along the lines of performance for me, but that's going to differ for everybody. But I digress. Back to the you know fashion muscle conversation. It really is uh, uh, what I kind of wanted to do was steel man the other side about the strength and conditioning side, right? And uh, really mm -hmm. try to see where they're coming from, looking at it as if we're not us, but like the, who they would deem as the fascial, fascia boys. I, what, what do they call them? The mm. fascia boys or something? I don't know. Yeah. It's like, like we could just call it the fascia based sure, the community. The fascia based community, you know, like, how they would look at that and see how it's ridiculous. Right. Because mm. in the strength and conditioning world, it's obvious you go, you get stronger in the gym. Okay. You do the hardcore stuff in the gym. You're, squatting deadlifting to in various ways olympic lifting uh you know some rehab based stuff in between and uh and then your fascia will come with it's not really a a big deal because your muscles and your tendons go in your muscles go into tendon goes into bone and you get those stronger and then you go f do your skills at your you know whatever sport you're doing and then mm -hmm. that's how mm -hmm. it's done Right. So what that would, I think, be the steel man of the argument. Right. I, I yeah, I, I could say that, like, the idea is if you're practicing your sport enough uh, within your sport, you produce force. Right. Mm -hmm. Typically, if you're a soccer player, a football player, a hockey, whatever it happens to be. And if you can increase motor unit output by doing strength training, then in situations where you're in increasing, you know, using force production, then you will produce more force and therefore you will be better at your sport. And so, you know, there is a direct translatable correlation between increasing strength in the gym and increasing strength on the field or in your sport or wherever it happens to be, right? You, you increase your vertical. Well, it's like if you get squat 200 pounds before and I can squat 300 pounds and you can do it really, really fast, then that, you know, you can use that extra strength in your legs to jump a little bit higher kind of thing. So that would be, that's the, you know, I don't know if I'm steel manning it or I'm just saying like, I think that's what the well, mentality is, or I think that's what we the argument is. We both used to be in this, in this camp. 
Like I was in this camp for years, <clears throat> yeah. crossfitting, powerlifting. I, I know what it's it's about, right? And uh, and that's really it. And then you take the range of motion argument into it, and it's just like don't do partial range. Progressively overload into larger range of motions. Ranges of motion, you'll have more mobility. Therefore, you will be safer in multiple planes of motion during your sport. Right? Where's the hmm. fascia in this argument? It just go, it comes along for the ride, really. Well, like, you know. <laughs> well, and I think you know the the interesting thing about long range training, and I was thinking about this the other day, is that yeah, you can train to a certain range in in these uh, you know slow eccentrics or even isometrics, but when it comes to say throwing, right? If you throw, you're extending farther than if you were doing like an ice like a even like a a, a loaded stretch. Like a loaded stretch will take you so far, but the actual dynamic forces of whipping your arm back or the dynamic forces of like when you're full on in a sprint and you're like launching your, you know, one leg forward, one leg back, you have this reciprocal motion, the, the elastic and dynamic forces stretch your, your fascia and your tissues farther than if you are being stretched in some of these isometric positions. And if you are training to have rigidity in these isometric positions at the at these end ranges they don't know how to create enough laxity or enough relaxation to get into that excessively you know stretched out end range and that's actually what can screw you up because then you get into these dynamic stretch positions and your body is so conditioned to be strong strong in that position or rigid in that position that it it inhibits you from actually letting those muscles and that fascial tissue stretch out in the dynamic context and that's when you can have connective tissues like tendons or ligaments start to tear because they're the ones that are trying to stretch out to compensate for the fact that you have rigid uh, musculature and rigid fascial uh, tensioning in those end range positions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like that, is yeah, that yeah. logical? Um, 100%. And, and you have to sequence your, your joints. Like if you're throwing and I just mm -hmm. pulled my pec back, it's not going to do anything. I have to rotate my, you know, my hips and my uh, rib cage, and it has to go in sequence in order to, to fire the throw properly. And it also, in order to keep your, you know, tissues safe, right? But if you're only mm -hmm. going one at a time and you're going, okay, if I stretch my pec to the max and I can max that pec stretch out, yeah, you may be doing some stretching there, but you've never taught your body how to sequence it. And people would say, well, that's the sport. Well, like 1% of people mm. play sports. What about longevity? The people who are 40 years old, right? Like they don't do sports. So like th that's why it's a different question, right? Like between longevity mm. for people mm -hmm. who are like 40. And I know this because I work with patients, right? Like not a lot of people play sports. Even play people who played sports when they were young forget about a lot of stuff. Like they're not – if you stop doing things for like 10 years, your body forgets it to a large degree, right, and becomes rigid and – it's just not applicable to people who are older trying to restart their journey back towards healthy tissue, right? So, um, mm. and athleticism. So that kind of takes the question or like begs the question. It's like, if you're doing all your strength work in the gym and you're doing your skill work in your sport, but you don't play a sport, where are you getting your skill work? Right? Mm. Where Where are you getting it? Yeah. Like from the sport. Yeah, but if you don't play a sport, like most people, where are you getting your skill work? Yeah. 
Exactly, right? <laughs> You're just so uh, like that. That is always brought up to me. It's like skills are for sports. Strength is for the gym, right? And it's just like, okay, well, I mean, you're only gonna you're only doing one piece of the puzzle if you're only doing the strength work. If you're older and you don't have a sport, and most sports are very limited in the movement capacity, they're all different. You're specializing in it, so you're doing mm-hmm. skills for one particular movement, even if you're playing a sport. Or sorry, one particular sport, even yeah. if you're playing a sport. So, is there a blueprint towards movement that is applicable in many different sports and that's where like you know the go to blueprint thing comes in and it's like okay Mm -hmm. yeah there is there's a and and i don't even want to call it go to blueprints human blueprint it's like is there a way that humans move in a spiral fashion uh can you deduce it in slow motion it's obvious you can right whether you want to like we can argue about the exercises to get there and whether you even can get there we can have that argument but is there a blueprint of movement i think absolutely there is and that's also denied within the system or within the strength and conditioning world. It's arbitrary. The highest orders well, don't it's interesting. Uh, acknowledge us. <laughs> well, because it, people within the strength and conditioning industry would not argue that there is better quality and worse quality movement. But at the same time, no, I would say that. You know, it's like people people correct squat form and deadlift form and lifting form all the time. And it's usually... You know, in that context, maybe you could say it's like, oh, well, you know, it's better or worse form based on muscle activation or better mm-hmm. on force output or based on these uh, you know, these ECG uh, measures that we have for how much muscle firing is going on, right? So you could say, well, maybe they do that. But, you know, I think that the idea that there's better movement quality and worse movement quality means that there's a right way to move and a wrong way to move, <laughs> you know, ultimately. Or, or if you, want to, if you want to avoid right and wrong as in terms of because like only a Sith speaks in absolutes, right? You don't want to, you, you can talk about relativity a little bit more. Uh, you can say that there are more and less efficient ways to move, uh, more um, like appropriate and healthful ways to move and, and more damaging and inefficient ways mm-hmm. to move where it jars your system. Um, and, and, you know, if it, like, if you're, if you're admitting that there's a spectrum, then you're admitting that there's like, there's, there's a good side of the spectrum and a less desirable side of the spectrum. And just even admitting that is hard for a lot of people, even though the language that they use and the suppositions that they make pre-assumes. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting what you're saying here. Like to me, it comes down to, is there a blueprint for movement? Is there a, uh, guiding star to go to for human movement that is applicable amongst all humans? I think, yes, there is. It's spiral mm. in nature, okay? We, we can show that on slow motion specifically. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of systems do that. Like, Gota does it the best in terms of, like, showing it in slow motion, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, oh, their movement practitioners never show it. It's like, you're not following them because they do show it a lot, right? So, yeah. like... Yeah, to me, do. you can argue about the ankle bone stuff all you want. If you want to throw that away, I, I like doing it. But if you want to throw that away, that's cool. There's still a uh, rotary pattern that happens, um, a spiral nature to movement, and a pressure wave that goes mm. through the body. Okay, and to me, that's the blueprint. I, I spent this last couple weeks in Mexico, luckily, and uh, it's my godson is just turning one. And he's just going from crawling to walking. So I spent two weeks straight, like in the same house, just watching him walk, crawl, uh, taking different videos of him, like trying to get up and watching the ways that he's trying to do it, you know, and the, the crawling mm-hmm. mechanism, the spine moving back and forth. It's like, when does it become a rigid lever? 
when when are we supposed to be start mm. training it? Like the the crawl is back and forth. So as soon as he gets up, it's a rigid lever. Um, that to me doesn't make sense. But then you'll you'll hear guys go, well, babies aren't adults, so it's ridiculous. It's an appeal to nature to believe that that's the case. That uh, adult humans have same blueprint than babies. Well, then I'm appealing to which, then I'm which, appealing which, to nature because well, <laughs> there's there's elements. I'll, that, I'll give I'll give some yeah. credence. I do agree with that to a degree, right? Like there are obviously adaptations where like an adult human has more capacity and has some trade-offs for its biomechanical nature to a degree, but it's again, how far are you going to take mm -hmm. that argument? You know, how, how, how much it's like, okay, so like, yeah, the hips are more stable. So you can't like drop into a, a squat and you aren't as like amorphous essentially when you're an adult versus when you're a baby. But does that mean that the, the, the energy transfer patterns or the efficient patterns of the human structure fundamentally change from infancy to adulthood? Not necessarily. Well, I heard Adam Meekins make the argument. He's like, well, the morphology, look at this study. The morphology says that uh, human adults and babies uh, have different morphologies, right? Obviously. But mm. when you look at cultures who always squat, you have a lot more people squatting at 90 years old than, you know, a Westerner who, like, you take the average 30-year-old, can't even get halfway down, you know? Like, uh, mm. most of the people in our niche are, like, step out of our niche for a second and go walk around public. You know what I mean? Like, th there's not a lot of people who are uh, competent within their bodies, right? Even at a, you know, a 30 or 40-year-old mm. age, right? So, um, you we know that your body morphs to what you do specific adaptations to impose demand. So if you keep doing something, you're not going to be exactly like a baby. Your hip socket isn't going to be exactly like a baby's, but you're going to morph closer to what it was as you're uh, developing. Where if I'm a baby mm. and then I go and have, and my parents put shoes on me and make me sit and I play video games until I, till I'm like 14 years old. Don't you think you might adapt to mm. that? Like, right? Yeah. Like, um, so, of course, you're not a baby when you're an adult. That's not the argument. <laughs> it's that you keep a lot of the same uh, physiological adaptations that you do when you're crawling. It's just a stand-up version. Um, it's the same hmm. blueprint pattern. And that's my assertion. We can go into details about that. But uh, we, have we have many, many a times, <laughs> yeah. right? But, like, I'm just saying that... Um, there's still a denial of this. It's not anywhere to be found. And uh, I, I want to give credence to that, uh, not system, but like uh, the way to look at that and to yeah, respect human, that, that particular uh, human movement blueprint that is not um, shown in many of the systems now. It is strength, mm -hmm. power, speed, force production, force levers. production, levers, uh and muscles and basically and and lifting and those like all everything i just mm. mentioned is is the paradigm that we're coming from and it's really cadaver models that are the basis of of that the lever system yeah so i think that's a that's a cool kind of place to pause the conversation for yeah. a hot minute because we, 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 we dove pretty deep into fascia. We dove pretty deep into the, the lever system, the strength and conditioning perspective versus maybe 
you know, the polarity between like the, the fascia denying strength and conditioning coach that it's like, it's all muscles, tendon and bone. And then the, the marketing hype fascia guy that it's like, fascia is the only thing that matters. If you're not fascially driven, you're going to go into snap city and you're going to hurt yourself and you have to buy my $3,000 program. Otherwise you'll never be fascially driven and be the best athlete you can be. Um, and I think, you know, talking about just acknowledging this living tissue, uh, th that was like the big thing that stood out to me was it's like, oh yeah, this is something that when you try to isolate it from the rest of the system, because it is something that holds the system together, it no longer is the same thing. It does it not contain the same properties. This innervated, electric, hydrated, viscoelastic living tissue uh, is very hard to study and understand uh, because if you try to isolate it as a variable, the 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 sum is greater than the uh, the uh, sorry the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? And so if you try to part out fascia, you lose what it fundamentally is when you try to study it. So that's what makes it very very difficult to actually understand. Um, it kind of ties into this idea of human beings having having a natural blueprint to movement as well, because if we have a natural blueprint, then we also would presumably have a natural way that our tissues are supposed to behave and respond to particular forces. So we're supposed to move in a particular way. That also presumes that we're supposed to handle forces in a particular way, and that handling of forces would implicate uh, how our tissues develop. And so I think that's a cool uh, overall summary. How I'd like, like to close out this episode, 99, before we, uh, you know, we're, we're so close to our centennial episode, we got three uh, quick just little requests. Maybe we can do like a little rapid fire round from, from each side. I, I asked if anyone wanted uh, to have certain topics and maybe we'll dive in, into like a little bit deeper on these down the line, do, do whole episodes about, uh, you know, aspects of these. Uh, but I have three things just real quick that people ask us questions on, and I love answering audience questions. So uh, favorite biomechanics training parallels with life lessons. So the way that I would kind of reword that is, is there something that you learned about life through biomechanics informed training? Is there some uh, parables that you could tell about how you should live your life or some lesson that you've learned about life that can be told through a biomechanics lens? Yeah. Um, oh man, this one's tough. I eh? like, uh, I guess we're in the, uh, applied biomechanics realm. Okay. It's not the mathematical biomechanics mm. realm. It's a, a new paradigm really like what we're proposing is a new paradigm. It's a new way of looking at the first principles. So, I learned a lot about going back to learning where your original thoughts come from. And you have to in order to think this way, which is why it's so hard for people to grasp. And I don't expect this to go mainstream in the next day or so, right? Like this is for the, for the future. And uh, basically for me, it, it taught me to go back to nature that like what we just talked mm. about with the, you know, the parallels with the baby and the adult. You're going back to nature and nature has blueprints that work. And while the world is going towards AI and uh, eat the bugs and be a complete automaton, I'm going back to nature and I'm going back to simplicity, you know, like um, mm. that's really, you know, kind of a parallel um, because ultimately biomechanics is really hard, but the blueprint is simple, right? Like it's, it's back to nature. Right. To me, that, that's what it mm -hmm. is. It's, it's something else to other people for you. I would say the big lesson or the big paradigm shift that I picked up from biomechanics was this idea of, uh, power versus force, uh, which is like the, I think 
I forget who who the author Hawkins, of that book was. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. yeah, Hawkins. I, I, I forget. It's Hawkins. David something Hawkins. Hawkins. Um, yeah. David Hawkins. I, I wanted to say Richard, but I was like, no, it's that's not Richard, Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. I was like, <laughs> it's not 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 the same uh, yeah. genre here, but. Uh, so, and it kind of talks about the muscle versus fascia thing, right? It's this idea that everything that I did used to be about overcoming, right? And there is still an element of self-overcoming that I apply, uh, but it's more mental self-overcoming now as opposed to physical self-overcoming, where it's like before it was like, how much weight can I push? How much can I drive? How, can, how much can I force myself to, to get over, to, to push through? And now it's like, how much can I teach my body to work with the forces to get more out of it, right? And so when you're talking about the biomechanical efficiency, utilizing that elastic recoil, and and really just trying to harness a lot of the stuff that's already there, rather than having to fight against things, to work with things to produce more energy and to produce more power and to produce and and and, and have to execute or implement less force, there's this realization that you can move with life and you're actually much more powerful when you move with life and resist less. Um, that doesn't mean that you are going to become weak or that you should become weak or that you shouldn't have elements of self overcoming. Again, I have a very strong meditation practice, a very strong practice of discipline, a very strong practice of overcoming myself. Um, I push myself very hard in runs. i you know, strive to learn new skills that uh, are mental limitations. Like I'm learning languages, I'm learning instruments, I'm learning dance moves, I'm learning things that are always challenging me, like mentally on an ego level and all kinds of things. But for the most part, it's not always just a, 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 against like how much can you push against the world. Sometimes it's how much can you flow with the world and how much can you flow with life. And so that, that's been the biggest paradigm shift for me that biomechanics really taught me because as I was trying to learn how to create a more efficient gate cycle, it's like how much can I flow with life as opposed to push against it. Um, next question was current diet, what are you eating? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you start? Like I'm, not, I'm not really a diet guy. Uh, to be honest, mm. like I have not dove into the literature in a long time. Um, uh, it's 80, 20 for me. I don't eat anything processed. Um, I eat only locally sourced, uh, you know, grass fed, grass finished beef, uh, elk, mm. um, chicken sometimes, you know, meat, basically grass fed, grass finished, uh, mm. 90% of the time on that one. Uh, I eat, uh, anything that's not processed, Try to avoid a lot of pastas, grains, although I'll indulge from time to time here and there. Uh, avoid seed oils. Um, that's a personal choice there. I don't know about the studies. I don't really care. Personal choice for me. Um, uh, mm. I go for more holistic and less processed. And uh, whole milk is something that I've been really diving into. It is bomb, but hard to get, right? And nice. uh, what yeah. else? Um yeah, I, I like homemade food. My girlfriend's a great cook, so uh, it's made with love. That is a difference than having, you know, something mm -hmm. from God knows where. Uh, having it homemade, there's nothing like it. Nothing like Mama's cooking too, right? So I love all that. Yeah, makes a huge difference. Major what about difference. You? Um, so I, I did like a 33 day. I was supposed to be in a hundred day experiment on a carnivore diet, right? Where I was going to eat nothing but eggs, butter, and uh, locally raised meat. And I got really sick. 
uh, like really, really sick. I haven't told, I haven't made a public thing about this yet, but uh, I had like really hard heart palpitations. My cardiovascular capacity went way down. I was chronically anxious. Um, I, you know, I got my salts right. I got my magnesium. I got my potassium. I got my electrolyte balance good. I was doing the OMAD thing. And then I was eating all day and I was doing the fat loading. I was doing basically all the ways that I was advised to do it. I was doing it. Um, but I had really bad heart palpitations. Uh, I would like, and, and like to the point where if I did something like very physically demanding, I would have to stop. And because I was afraid I was going to have a heart attack. Um, and it was kind of scary. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was sleeping from like, 10 p.m. till like 2 or 3 a.m. And then I was awake basically until 5, would fall asleep for another half hour, give or take. But my sh my sleep was shit. Like I had like some of the worst sleeps in my life, which compounded on the anxiety. Um, so finally I was like, man, I got to stop. Like I, this is this is ridiculous. Like my system is not agreeing with this. I can't, you know, I, I already did this with veganism where I was like, oh, but the studies told me that veganism is good. Now it's like, oh, but the, the YouTube doctors told me that this is good. <laughs> you know, um, I, I didn't feel good. So I stopped doing it. And that was, uh, so right now what I'm currently consuming is almost the exact opposite. I'm eating an extremely low fat diet. Uh, mostly of like Greek yogurt, fruit, uh, some maple syrup, honey, some sugars, rice, potatoes, um, bo a lot of bone broth too, like tons and tons of bone broth. And that's basically all I'm eating right now. Once every couple of weeks, I'll go eat whatever the fuck I want. So I had like some croissants from uh, like a local bakery that a friend gave me. I had, uh, you know, a few slices of pizza and a glass of wine. But like for the most part, it's like, you know, good hydration, uh, very, very low fat foods, uh, high carbohydrates, high sugar. Um, and then I'm taking a, a big whack of supplements for my liver right now. And I can get into that later. Uh, there's a really cool Instagram account called clearly, I think it's C L R L L Y. Uh, and he has a liver detox protocol. I think I actually developed hypervitaminosis a, I'm actually getting all my blood results. You know, I'm getting like all my blood results back from the carnivore diet soon here. But my speculation is, uh, eating, eating some liver, eating like a dozen or more eggs a day, super, super high in vitamin A, uh, and then eating so much beef, uh, my ferritin levels, my iron levels are probably super, super sky high. And then I probably had some sort of hypervitaminosis A from excessive liver and egg consumption. Uh, so again, trying to get my mineral balance back. I probably had some excessive copper from eating all that liver. Um, and I was eating like dry desiccated liver and liver chips. I really fucking hate liver in every other form. Um, in general, I just hate liver. I think it's disgusting. And, and more recently, the more I study it, I'm like, I don't actually think it's that healthy for people interesting. to eat. Um, that's, that's really, yeah, I really don't, I don't that think the whole it, thing is really interesting. I'm looking forward to those blood results to see what's what. Uh, did you did you take a journal Same. on like how much meat you're eating and what time of the day and stuff like that? Oh yeah, I've I've cool. every I've everything written <laughs> written out. So it's like I was eating I was eating like a pound and a half to two pounds of meat a day, and about uh, you know like a dozen eggs uh, with a with a ton of butter, and that's it. You know I had my salts and my magne you know I had like potassium chloride, sodium chloride, magnesium. And, uh, no supplements except for, I was taking a calcium, uh, partway through, uh, like a, like a, like a bone based bone matrix calcium from, uh, Paul Saladino's company, uh, heart and soil. Uh, cause I thought it might've helped with some of my mineral issues, but. Oh, it does. Oh, sorry. Uh, so I, yeah. 
I just, I was just going to say, I felt fucked the entire time. And so I, st- I stopped doing it because I felt so yeah, fucked. That, that reminds me just uh, to add on to it. I drink mostly spring water and that's from uh, a source mm. here. Um, I haven't filled up because I just got back from vacation, but usually spring water from the side of the mountain here, use a charcoal filter um, for supplements. It's all mushrooms, reishi, chaga, uh, cordyceps, lion's mane, and turkey tail. I mix mm. those in, switch them up every three days. Uh, some shilajit and chlorella, and that's my supplement yeah. game. Uh, nice. Clear water, good water with mushrooms, basically, and some ma- magic nice. once yeah. in a while. That's, as that's well. basically it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. that's always fun. Um, and actually, uh, this is interesting because psilocybin is is associated with neurogeneration as well. So, like, you can take certain doses, and, and it actually helps. Uh, de novo neurogenesis i don't know if that's the actual term but uh, brain cell growth you know uh, magic mushrooms <laughs> you don't have to trip you don't have to trip super super hard on them but like if you take like a, a macro dose i think it um it basically interferes with the 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 function of your corpus callosum so there's more cross brain action happening and then if you take it even in smaller smaller doses you can actually have um better uh neurogenesis cool. yeah, essentially better brain brain growth so last uh topic of uh it, it, very very non-specific just more of a statement just flow state can we speak on flow state um so uh, i'm gonna actually just give some context uh what do you think flow state is and how do you personally access it Ooh, yeah flow state is when you're not everything's just going in slow motion you're just winning completely you're in the moment everything's in slow motion and you're able to Access a state that you normally can't access, and you're really, really in the moment enjoying it. So for me, I think you have to earn this. Like it's, I think the same person asked me a question. It's like, should being in flow state be a goal? I don't think so, so much because like for me, flow state comes when I'm skiing, but I've been skiing since I was three years old. I think I've earned it. I've done like probably a thousand Hmm. days skiing. I can hit big mountains like runs that you know most people can't access and you know once every three or four times i go I, I feel like i'll be in a flow state where you just can't lose you're hitting things like you're flying off things it's like wow this is incredible i can't believe i can even do this you know so it's like mm. Mm. is it a goal to get to probably not because you have to put so much time into something and i think it happens other than that almost by accident I don't know. That's that's just my opinion on that, right? So, so flow state to me is basically when you're not there, right? Like you, as in like the ego self, the one that is kind of modulating and trying to nitpick and, and precognize everything that you do is not there anymore. And your non-intellectual faculties take a back seat and allow you to be so present to the moment and so present to the task that like you said, you, you experience extremely beautiful levels of performance. I get into flow states when we're on these podcasts for sometimes, and that's not like a high skill thing necessarily. That's just me so present to the conversation that I can allow and trust. I think it's a, it's a, it's like a trust that's so deep that you're not trying to control your outer environment. You're not trying to control other people's perceptions. You're just there in it 
as the experience itself. And what you're talking about when you have to earn it, right? Like I think about guitar playing for me, I, I can go on stage at any given time, play with, you know, uh, various different bands of different genres and just show up and start playing. And I, and I'm, I'm not there the entire three hours that I'm playing because I've put so much effort, like the amount of time that I spent hyper focusing and, and, and paying so granular attention to my scales, to the sounds, the speed of picking to the, all these different technical aspects. It's basically, um, when you pay so much attention that you don't have to pay attention anymore, when you can do something almost like automatically. And because the, the ego intellectual mind that works so much slower than some of the subconscious parts of your brain gets out of the way, you're able to access these zones of genius that you would never be able to access if you're just trying to, um, you know, like neurotically control every variable in your environment. So that's, that's the, that's my experience of flow state. It's like, you're not there. It's like all the work that you put in is there, but you, this like neurotic, egoic, control freak that tries to control the perceptions of everything around you or the situations of everything around you is gone. It's vanished. Vamos. And once you get out of your own way, then you can experience some beautiful things. I think flow state actually could be something that is worth striving for because in order to get to a flow state, like you said, you have to have massive levels of competence, like mm -hmm. massive levels of competence. So massive levels of competence is something to strive for. And presence is something to strive for. I actually think uh, I heard uh, a quote from Eckhart Tolle the other day, which is that the primary purpose of your life is to be present. The more that I observe my own life and how much happier I am when I'm just like engaged and, and present to the moment, the more I'd have to agree with that. You know, like the more, the less that I try to like get to the next thing or try to, you know, manage other people's perception of me or, or get like all neurotic and fucking weird about life. Then the more present I am to just what it is that I'm doing. And I just appreciate what it is that I'm doing and I'm, I'm here and I'm not thinking about the next thing the better my life tends to be, the better my performance tends to be, the better my relationships tend to be, the better everything tends to be. So I think that a high level of competence and a high level of presence, those are two things that are very, very worth striving for in life. And if, a f if the thing is trying to get to a flow state, I think is erroneous because like I said, like you are not there. So the trying element, it's the ego that tries and so if you're trying to get to a flow state, you've kind of missed the point. Just get really fucking good at something and, and, and be present mm -hmm. to the moment and the flow state will happen. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's I think, uh, like athletics or I shouldn't even say athletics. Like, um, I'm going to say athletic activity though. And music are two of the ways to really access it. I think like for skiing, mm -hmm. I'm already in, you know, some of the most beautiful mountainous areas. It's already epic. Like you're, mind is blown with what you're seeing, right? Like it's, it's bigger than you can imagine. Right. And that already puts you in a state. It's a, just like, Whoa. And then all of a sudden your body starts to, you're warm. You're able to do athletic feats that, that like, I mean, you're already in that state. You're almost there. Right. And combine that with the massive amount of time put into something, it becomes super easy to do. And mm. that, that's where, um, I've always wondered, and I don't know how to put this, like, is it worth it just for my energy levels to always just ski, to drop everything else and just go skiing? You know what I mean? To like give up four or 500 bucks for, from work and just go skiing for the day. Right. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes I'm thinking, you know what, if I do this five times in a row and I can get in a flow state every, like, you know, three or four of those times, 
what is the energy in my but what is it doing to the spirit and energy of my body like and how many how long am i going to be able to access that flow state from that activity right so mm. i don't know it's a it's a good question right so I think so. And on that note, uh, let's wrap this up and we'll get, we'll get more. I'd love to do a whole flow state conversation because this is something that is very fascinating to me. It's something that I'm experiencing in deeper ways uh, as I've dove into a very specific type of meditation practice in the last couple of weeks. Like my life has completely and totally changed and I'd love to talk more about that. Um, but for the time being guys, this is episode 99. We uh, are trying to work out a really cool guest for episode hundred and we'll keep you posted on that. Uh, we might not be patient enough. We might just like do episode hundred because we don't want to wait for the guests to show up, but we do have a cool guest lined up. And if you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on Spotify, go leave us a review. We always really appreciate it. You can follow me at anthony.manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E on Instagram. You can follow Will at The Art of Move. And if you guys want to hear certain topics, you want to hop on for a conversation with us, you want to chat, you like the conversations, you disagree with stuff, we're always open to constructive criticism. We're also open to being told that we're wrong as long as the arguments are well-formed. And logical and coherent, right? So uh, let us know where you disagree with us. Let us know where you agree with us. We're always happy to have conversations. And thank you for listening to The Art of Move, guys. This is episode 99. We'll catch you on the next one. one.